It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Bilby. When Sylvia Alajaji was a kid, her family would take these road trips, and in the car, they would listen to a cassette. My dad had this mixtape. This cassette had Adis on it. It had ABBA on there. It had recording of Hava Nagila on there. It had the doors on there. Like, there was, of course, Feiruz. And for Sylvia, growing up in Oklahoma in an Armenian family from Beirut, these songs symbolize something beyond simply what you listen to instead of the radio. For me, this cassette still today represents sort of what I understood being Armenian to be. And in that understanding of what it meant to be Armenian, few singers were more important than the person she mentioned first in the list, Adis Harmandian and his song Karun Karun, which you're listening to right now. Here's Sylvia translating the chorus. Spring, spring, spring it is, lovely, lovely, lovely it is, with your black, black eyes, my love, you burn me. <laughs> Sylvia is now an associate professor of ethnomusicology at Franklin and Marshall College. And these childhood memories of Adis have actually shaped her research, including her recent book, Music and the Armenian Diaspora, Searching for Home in Exile, with Indiana University Press. One of the questions that I was thinking a lot about when I started my book was why the music that I grew up with wasn't being written about in any books, you know, and Karun Karun was the first song that came to my mind. You can't deny just how significant it was in terms of helping people sort of be proud to just be a, like a, a normal kid, you know, a normal teenager. Yeah. Songs like Karun Karun with pop melody and lyrics in Armenian may have helped Sylvia and others feel normal, as she said. But it also seemed to feel different than what it meant to be Armenian for someone like her grandfather, a genocide survivor. My grandpa, my mom's dad, against all odds, built the most amazing life for himself in, in Beirut. He lost an eye during the marches, and so he had this one eye, and he always wore this beret, and, and he was a shop owner, and he had no fear. He would go to Turkey to like buy his goods and come back. He would negotiate with anybody. If one business failed, he'd start another. Like This was somebody whose past played no role in like the kind of life that he lived. It might have seemed like like the past played no role in his life. But of course it did, in ways that were both subtle and momentous. While Sylvia grew up listening to songs in Armenian like Karun Karun, in addition to Feiruz and The Doors, her grandfather would listen to different music. My mom would talk about how he would listen to Turkish music. I think about me not knowing these Turkish songs. I think about what do I not know about him? And that generational divide in music also gestured to other differences. The greatest unknown of all, perhaps, had to do with his experiences during the genocide, which he, like many, preferred to leave in the past. The first time he talked about the genocide with my mom and her sisters was during the Civil War and the electricity was cut. And he said, I'm going to tell you a story. And the story was about this little boy and being forced to march and his mother dying. And at the end of it, he said, I was the little boy. My mom tells me that they were struck silent. It was basically never talked about again. For me, I think about him all the time because the survivors, you know, what brought them happiness? You know, that kind of frivolity that Karun Karun brought to their children, the children of the survivors, you know, what was that for, for the survivors themselves? And so I'm, I'm looking for that joy. I'm looking for the things that made their lives livable, you know, or, or, or made life something that they wanted to live. What I'm really trying to do is just know my grandpa. 
Well, on today's episode, we'll talk about some of these questions of music and silence in the Armenian diaspora. And we're going to start where many accounts of Armenian music do, with Gomidas, the priest and musicologist of the late 19th and early 20th century, who is seen by many as the founder of an Armenian musical tradition. So to a lot of, um, especially people who are, you know, um, knowledgeable in Western art or Western classical music, the easiest comparison um, for Gomidas is Bartok. So Gomidas was a priest and a musicologist who would go around recording the music of the villages. And so he was basically bringing to light this music that a lot of people, especially in cosmopolitan or urban areas, were not aware of. To write a book that proclaims to be about Armenian music, as I did in my book, um, you really can't not talk about Gomidas because um, discursively he is Armenian music right now because of the way he brought to light a lot of this music from these villages that people hadn't heard about. Today, he's really a heroic figure among Armenians um, because he was arrested on April 24 in 1915, and he didn't die as a as a direct result of the genocide, but he died um, years later in an institution in Paris. So all of that, you know, brought together has made him really an iconic figure to Armenians and one of the rare Armenian figures that means just as much to the diaspora as as to Armenians in, in the country of Armenia or from the country of Armenia. Yeah, and it seems like there's a real symbolic weight to this. On the one hand, he's sort of discovering, bringing into being an Armenian music. Mm -hmm. And then the story of him suffering after the genocide. Yes, exactly, exactly. So very much on a symbolic level. I mean, he represents so much of the Armenian narrative as it's as it's understood uh, today. And what was also interesting about his work is historically, he was doing something that fit perfectly with the nationalist aims of the revolutionary parties during that period, especially in the Ottoman Empire, because during this time period, they were, you know, insisting upon their Armenianness and that we should have our own nation and, and you know, being belligerent in the way that the Ottomans uh, were, you know, believed them to be. And so to be able to claim a music as your own and to find that music among the peasantry, it was a very romanticized um, kind of thing, but to be able to find that music and, and see it among the peasantry was a way of claiming um, selfhood. And so um, so aside from this, the symbolic importance of what he was doing, the, the timing of it was also something that very much played into sort of the iconography that we have today of, of Gomidas. Yeah. And as you note in the book, this is very much part of a late 19th century all around the world seeking national origins exactly. amidst the peasants. So what's interesting is if anybody who's listening knows the work, uh, for example, of Mark Nishanyan, he's written a lot about the revolutionary poets from this time period. And even at that time, they were talking about Gomidas as, as sort of elevating this music of the peasantry to an art with the capital A. Um, and that in itself, once again, you know, was such a big role in sort of the nationalistic aims of, of the period. So what did he find that was distinctive? The modal characteristics of the music. So this was something that, according to his writings of the time, you know, was very much unlike like Turkish music or Arabic music or any of the surrounding people at the time. And so these modal characteristics were a way of once again saying 
that the Armenians are unique. You know, our music does not sound like what is going on around us. And so what Gomidas was doing by saying, you know, Armenian music is not like what we're hearing around us. He was also making a statement about, for example, the music that you would hear among the wealthy Armenian communities in like um, Constantinople, right? So this was a not so subtle dig at um, wealthier Armenians, especially those who were very much ensconced into the power structures of the Ottoman Empire. And what kinds of music would they be listening so to? this more sort of like cosmopolitan um you know music where you heard a mixture mm. of modal characteristics you know things that were that were armenian but also turkish you know maybe and instruments sorry, for, on the oud yeah maybe for some of our listeners who are less familiar yes. with with musical terminology what, what would modal characteristics be so the kinds of scales for example that were being used and the notes the particular notes that you would find in these scales like the way that the notes would be put together that sort of thing another thing is for example the way the harmonic characteristics of the music so the way notes would be put together so those were some things that were distinctly armenian yeah so all of that was differentiating it from the musics that surrounded it in the especially in like the the village areas but in the cosmopolitan areas you found a music that you know you really couldn't trace what the quote unquote origins of it were right it was very much a mixture so it was ottoman it was armenian it was, you know, you had Jewish musicians playing with Armenian musicians. The inability to sort of be able to claim something as purely Armenian made it something that was to Gomidas, you know, um, you can't claim this as ours, right? Like this is this is the music that we can claim as ours. Um, because of this also, this led to controversies between him and members of the clergy as well, because, you know, he was saying the way you sing the mass, the way you perform these, you know, religious works this is not Armenian and so when you're saying something like that you know there's a lot of weight to to that so he became sort of persona non grata among among a number of people but at the same time what he was also doing was quite you know revolutionary I mean people also did very much love him so as outspoken as he was he really did get a lot of support from people as well yeah and one of the interesting things that came up in the book is uh while he's cataloging all of this distinctly Armenian music, he's also talking about what Turkish melodies are. And one of these interesting asides is that a lot of these quote-unquote Turkish melodies he knew from his own family. Yes, exactly. And so I, it gets at the kind of mixed-upness here that it seems like he's both in dialogue with and and sort of collecting against in some way. Exactly, absolutely. I mean, and his own life is so fascinating because um, he, Gomidas was a name that he was given when he took on the or orders of, you know, when he became a priest. He was born Soroman Soromanyan and, he, you know, he wasn't speaking Armenian. He learned Armenian, uh, he learned Armenian later. He was born in the Ottoman Empire. So his own life is very much, you know, there's so much there that... So he grew up speaking Turkish. Yeah, he grew up speaking Turkish, which also made him very good at... Uh, very very fluid sort of scholar because he was able to go between these different songs that he was collecting. And then he also was one of the first to collect Kurdish uh, songs as well. And so he... A lot of that part of his um, part of his background, I, I wish people would talk about that more as well, you know. And there are a number of, of recent scholars and and musicians who have been doing really amazing work. A lot of it coming out of Turkey, where they are performing a lot of these works that Gomidas collected that weren't necessarily Armenian. And so part of what I look at in in the book is sort of this tension between you know what he was doing sort of in his time and then how he's come to be 
talked about today and sort of what role he fulfills in the Armenian in the Armenian narrative. And so what kind of tension do you see? The way he's remembered is very much he saved the Armenians, right? And 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 he suffered for it. And so these key things have come to very much play a role in how he's seen today. And I think sometimes the result is sort of flattening the complexity of who he was and and what he contributed to um, to the world. You know, Gomidas is not really Gomidas anymore. Gomidas has been used to sort of defend whatever position you're bringing regarding the Armenian narrative. Variously throughout my work, and I mentioned this in the book, people would either immediately, you know, tear up talking about Gomidas. Other people would roll their eyes and say he made, you know, Armenian music European. And so there was very much like a... There's a lot of tension around, you know, how to remember him. And so I think sometimes sort of the pushback against um, sort of over romanticizing Gomidas sometimes comes as a sort of a, out of a of, out of a frustration with how he's become more of an icon than like an actual, you know, human being. And it seems like one of the really interesting things about the book is how you followed those different legacies yes. and historicized them in yeah. terms of different places. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Armenian music in New York yeah. after the genocide. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, in the beginning of my work, I was in grad school and I was going down, you know, some sort of wormhole and I was on Amazon and I saw this CD called Armenians on 8th Avenue. Aside from the music, which was fascinating to me, like just to hear this music, to hear survivors singing Turkish and all of this, which, you know, normally you would not really hear. What was so interesting to me were the comments on on Amazon and in other places, like on YouTube, if if a clip of it was played. And as often happens on, in these sorts of comments, like people automatically, you know, sort of start fighting with each other. And so there were some five star reviews, and then there was, of course, some one star reviews, and maybe it was just one one star review. But regardless, the comment was something like, you know, this is not Armenian. How can you call it Armenian? You know, and so. So, um, so that to me sort of triggered something and I just started thinking, so what is Armenian then? You know, how are we going to, how are we making these decisions regarding what gets to be Armenian music and what, and what doesn't um, get to be Armenian music? And it really was something that was so utterly fascinating to me that these Armenians would come to the United States. And, and so the majority of these Armenians were ones who came uh, after like the Hamidian massacres and before the 1915 genocide. So that is a bit that is a bit critical in understanding sort of, you know, their comfort with this musical language and all of that and the other communities that they were meeting. So they would come to New York, you know, there would be other Greek communities, Sephardic Jewish communities that they had a lot in common with given their backgrounds in the Ottoman Empire. And one of those one of the common languages that they had was music. And so they would play together in these nightclubs and and a whole scene sort of grew around around this amazing music that, yes, was mostly in Turkish. We're going to take a short break here to listen to one product of this Ottoman musical culture. This song is from a Greek by the name of Achilles Poulos, who came to New York and ran a nightclub there for a while. Like many, he missed home, which was for him Balikisir. And so he sang about it. In fact, this was a smash hit. It sold tens of thousands of records. The song is in Turkish and is called Neden geldim Amerika'ya. Why did I come to America? 
It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby, speaking with Sylvia Alajaji. One thing that, you know, I work through in the book is how, what it was like for me as an Armenian to, you know, sort of see these musics and hear them. And one thing that really struck me was how little I knew about them. Part of that might have been because of how I grew up in the community I grew up in. But, you know, why do I not know them? But then I know there are other songs that all Armenians would know, you know, so I really wanted to understand that a little bit better. Was there something about it being in Turkish that especially surprised you? I think so. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would maybe know the oud, right? Like they would know what that instrument is, but not so many people are going to turn away from the music because it's the oud. I don't think that level of musical knowledge doesn't usually play t- into the rejection or it's not like they would hear it and they go, oh, there are microtones there. So I don't want to listen to this. It it was very much about the Turkish, I, I believe, you know, that that led people to want to turn away from this. You know, how can they be or, or we can't continue singing in Turkish. That linguistic element, I think, was was the most difficult thing for people to to get over what the language itself sort of symbolically began to represent for those of us who have, you know, grandparents or great grandparents who are survivors who came. Turkish was the first language for most of this generation. And so again, I it just really made me start thinking about, you know, how are we making these decisions about what from our own pasts we're willing to relinquish and and what do we hold on to? And so what does it mean that that I don't know these songs, you know, and my grandpa might have known them and loved them. Can we talk more about the scene? Yeah, this absolutely. This is 8th Avenue. What kinds of places were they playing? <laughs> so absolutely. So they were nightclubs and restaurants. And, and again, it was very much a cosmopolitan mix, right? So it wasn't like these were necessarily just Armenian nightclubs, but there were people from a lot of the populations of the Ottoman Empire were the owners of these nightclubs and, and people were, and the people who were going to these nightclubs were, you know, from all over. Um, but a whole scene did develop around around this music and um, around these places. And so if you look at one of the people I, uh, I interviewed in the book, very generously shared with me a number of um, things that he had from this period. And one thing that was great was a menu from one of these restaurants and the food on there was you know completely you know like I guess what it would be today considered Turkish but you know what were the foods like you know like manti for example and like you know hummus and tabule and so like stuff from Lebanon and stuff from you know stuff from Turkey but a total mix there there was nothing quote-unquote pure about it, right? It was very much this sort of heterogeneous mix of of cultures that were very much representative of the of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, it sounds like um, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a, it was quite a scene. But the music from it especially is just it, it's so Ottoman and, and, and so sort of uh, something that we don't get to hear as much today. And yeah. what would you say the time period of this? Scene this would is? have been like around like the 30s to like the 50s. 
50s or maybe even a little bit later, like 40s to 40s to 50s, something like that. Yeah. So in the book, you also trace what's happening in Beirut yes. at, at about the same time. Yes. And this is a different community with different kinds of concerns politically. Exactly. And so maybe could you say what forms those took? Yeah, and how yeah, it was yeah. Different? Absolutely. So, um, so earlier when I mentioned that these groups, that these musical groups that we're talking about, or these communities in the United States, that they came mainly after the Hamidian massacres, which were in the 1890s. So, one key difference with the communities in the Middle East, especially those that ended up in Syria and in Lebanon, is that they were mainly survivors from the 1915 genocide, and so it was a very, very different group that ended up um, in Beirut um, during this time. And so understandably, you know, their self-perception as a community was also going to be quite different. The other thing that um, that played a big role in just the differences between the communities was that in Beirut, or sorry, in the Lebanon communities, in the Syrian communities, especially in Lebanon, they were given quite a bit of autonomy from the government because it was a Christian minority and and the French were very happy to, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, um, more complexity here, but very, just to put it simply, um, the French were happy to accommodate another Christian uh, group there. And so because of that, the Armenians were really able to to sort of figure out who they were within this context in a way they weren't able to in the United States, where assimilation was was much more common. And so, yeah, so because of those differences, what you saw in Beirut was the formation of a very different kind of community, one that was really able to insist upon itself as being Armenian. And um, and also what happened was with the second generation, with the, the children of the survivors, they were they were schooled in the Armenian language and in Armenian history in a way that you didn't really see as much in the United States, although there were some schools, but it was happening on such a greater scale in in, in Beirut that, again, the sort of self-identification as Armenians and as people who had ended up in Beirut because of the genocide, like the genocide was very much a factor in their con- in their in their self-consciousness. And, and so, of course, that greatly affected also their musical identities. And so... Um, so yeah, so that's why, you know, when part of my work in the book is really more of an epistemological one where we, when we say, you know, I don't want to take for granted any sort of definition of Armenian music, because how you answer that question really has to do with where you ended up, you know, and 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 what sort of context from which you're coming and speaking. Connected to these educational policies that are possible in Lebanon in different ways than maybe in the US, uh-huh. a lot of people would say that we speak better Armenian than our parents yes, do. Yes, yeah. And so it gets at this kind of point about generational change in terms of language. So what form does that take musically? It's interesting, and I mentioned this in the book, but there was one question that a few people have asked me is, what did people in Beirut, like the youth, listen to, you know? And it's a question that I have a lot of difficulty answering, mainly because, you know, people's uh, memories are a little bit, you know, spotty when it comes to it. It doesn't seem to be that there was the same sort of like musical life for Armenians in Beirut the way that there was in the United States. So when we talk about sort of musical lives in Beirut, it's we have to have a very different conversation. Armenians were very, very, very well known as musicians in Beirut. They were highly regarded as pianists or as classical you know, musicians at the conservatory. They were teachers. And, and um, so they were very highly respected in terms of like Western art music. Um, and they were also very active in like the the. Rec- 
recording world, you know, but in terms of like being having an, an Armenian music, um, that much, you know, you would see Armenian music like in the churches, of course. And when I say Armenian music, I mean like, you know, religious music. Um, in schools, they would learn like nationalistic songs. But the question that I really wanted to know, and I'm still very interested in is what did you listen to just to like have a good time, you know, like when you were when you were at home? And the answer that I got the most was, well, we were listening to the Beatles. We were listening to, you know, what other people would listen to. We didn't want to really listen to what our parents were listening to. And so, you know, at in the homes, perhaps the parents had cassettes from like Turkey or cassettes from wherever, you know. And so there was a big generational divide, you know, understandably, the youth really wanted to, you know, listen to the European music that everybody else listened to. And so um, in the book, I talk about the emergence of this genre um, known as Estradayin with the most iconic um, uh, singer being uh, Adi Sarmandian. And what was revolutionary about this was that this was the first time that the youth could listen to a pop music that they could claim as Armenian, you know, even though like if we were going to do a musicological analysis of it, like, you know, we could probably say, oh, it's, you know, there's this European pop element to it. There's Turkish pop elements to it. Like Gomidas would not have declared yeah, it. Right. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. Exactly. But though, going back to the linguistic thing, it was in Armenian. And to hear a pop song that was in Armenian and to hear the singer singing about beautiful Armenian girls, you know, like that's really powerful, you know, to be an Armenian youth and to like sing about love in the Armenian language, which they were being, you know, really encouraged to speak, you know, being when you're told, you know, like if somebody speaks to you in Turkish, respond in Armenian, you know. And so to have this pop music and that's about love and about frivolity and it's about an Armenian girl with, you know, beautiful brown eyes and and all of that stuff. Like that was that I don't hesitate to use the word revolutionary because it allowed them to sort of be in a way that they couldn't before. Well, and it seems so distinct from church songs on yeah. the one hand, political songs on the other hand, and as a result, more intimate exactly in some ways, because it, it's about the everyday exactly it was about the everyday and also it was in the western armenian that the that the beirut armenians and the middle east you know that the the um these formerly ottoman armenians you know were were speaking and so yeah there was just so much about it um that was just so important and and one thing that i always say you know in my classes and and when i'm talking about my work is we have to honor that music that makes life livable, like in the most beautiful way, you know, like that that music that brings you joy, that 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 gives you excitement, that it's not just you're constantly being pounded over the head with, you know, like you said, like the, you know, the patriotic element and and the stuff. It's something that you were proud to listen to, like on the radio, you know. And one of the most amazing things about uh, well, Adis's most famous song was Karun Karun, and which is just means spring, spring, spring. And um, and it was translated into a whole bunch of other languages. Even Lebanese loved it. To be able to be Armenian in that public kind of way was really, really huge. I've been thinking about Palestine as I've been looking through a lot of this, and yeah. you talk a lot about Edward Said, and yeah. so it's there too. But I think of... Um, you know, this book, I Saw Ramallah. Yes, uh, yeah. There's this line that's always stuck in my head from that book about how when Palestine's no longer on a necklace that we wear around our necks, yes. when it's like something we're annoyed with, when it's something we complain about, um, 
and it's just so mundane exactly. and boring that's that's when we'll actually have yes, a place right absolutely. and so it seems like there's this tension between needing to assert armenianness but yeah. then also the thing about karun karun that's so distinctive is that it's normal exactly exactly it's so i mean the lyrics karun karun like it's just you know spring 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 it is how lovely your eyes are you know yeah it's just absolute frivolity you know and that i think is exactly what's denied um people who are dealing with these sorts of issues you know where you're just constantly being made aware of carrying on the legacy or carrying on this fight fighting for genocide recognition you know being aware of your armenianness speaking armenian as a political act everything becomes a political act and yet to have the ability to sing about love is just such a privilege and so for that reason you know um adis died not not too long ago and I I got became rather emotional thinking about it and again it's not music that necessarily like the youth are blasting but I don't think there's an Armenian who can tell you that that doesn't mean something to them and it's yeah. also not just limited to Armenians too yeah. right there's yeah, this wonderful exactly. detail of Nancy Asharam saying yeah. that this is one of her favorite songs yeah right? exactly there's such a lovely clip of her of Nancy Ashram, uh singing it in broken Armenian and again you know going back to like I love going down you know YouTube comments and so and so the comments the especially from people who identified as armenian just the utter joy that they felt seeing that they're expressing seeing nancy of all people nancy singing a little bit of karun karun i mean and especially like for when you're in diaspora you know like you there's one thing about being in diaspora is that you know that this is not really your home you know and whether that's because you're reminded like your home is somewhere else from, you know, within the community, like, you know, one day we'll be back in Armenia, or if it's just the people around you who pick up on your Arabic is not that great, or, you know, you, I, I know something about you, you know, I know what Armenians are like, like, your sort of otherness is constantly something that you're aware of. And so to see that song being sung by Nancy Ajram of all people was so, I think, so powerful, you know, about like, being able to claim your Lebanese-ness as well. Do you remember the first time you heard Karun Karun? No, because it's one of those songs that I feel like you're born knowing that song, you know? And so, um, yeah, so I, I wish I could tell you like when I, when I first heard it, but when I think about it, the place for me is in my parents' car listening to this cassette tape on like family road trips. I mean, it's interesting that you said you're born knowing it yeah. because, I mean birth and nationality are so kind of connected legally at least yeah and and it seems like what your book actually does is show that you're not actually born knowing these things these are these are very historicized things the eighth avenue sessions you didn't know about no i didn't you're absolutely right you're absolutely right i am speaking as as laila abluhot says you know all speaking is a speaking from somewhere you know and my speaking is very much as the daughter of two beirut armenians who immigrated to the united states um and i grew up in oklahoma which had a very 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 small armenian community i have in the course of my research i've been so fortunate to meet 
Armenians from all around the world, from various diasporic communities. And so there are like Armenians from Detroit, for example, whose relationship to like the Eighth Avenue songs is much more intimate than what mine were, where I had to sort of basically learn about them. And so, yeah, so that was the other thing that emerged in this from this for me. I couldn't take for granted that what I what I grew up with and what I sort of identified so closely as being Armenian, that somebody else would have the same sort of connection. So very well, somebody could be listening to this going, I, we barely heard Karun Karun growing up. But given the specific context in which, you know, I was I was coming from and, and what the memories my parents were bringing with them, it was something that was sort of indistinguishable from 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 my Armenianness. And there's a way that this music captures all these layers of identity, and also the kind of clashes and tensions between them and, yes. and one of these that you trace is with the Lebanese civil war yeah as increasingly Armenians are leaving Lebanon and coming to the United States there are tensions between different visions of what Armenian music is very much so and you really saw that play out in the United States where um, so there was this community that formed here from before the genocide and then um, after, when, when the Lebanese Civil War started, you saw a lot of Lebanese Armenians start to come to the United States. And so, again, these were a group of people that left the Ottoman Empire at a very different time than the present-day community in the United States. And then on top of that, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you saw a lot of Armenians from the country of Armenia coming. And so not only was there this clash between the different diasporic understandings of Armenia, like this different Western Armenian understandings, but then you had people from the actual country of Armenia. And that is really interesting because they were the ones who were actually from Armenia, this place that had sort of served a mythological role to Western Armenians who had never known Armenia except from this, you know, the place of this mythological home. And so to see the clash there, I think that was a particularly painful one, I imagine, because, you know, they're the ones from the homeland. But I'm seeing that I don't have a lot in common with you culturally, you know. Um, So this played out um, in music music as well, um, especially in California, where you saw uh, the most mixing between the different uh, communities. And so what form would that clash take? So that clash really took the form of, um, again, the language issue, right? Like what kind of language was our music going to be in? There was a nice passage that I think gets at some of these uh, tensions. I wondered if you could read it. Absolutely. Um, So I'll just set it up a little bit. So I'm talking about, so the last chapter looks at California after the after the civil war begins in Lebanon when, when you know this clash is happening and so one thing that I thought was really interesting is so my Armenianness isn't something that's like immediately read on to me because my last name Alajaji um, is doesn't have the IAN and even to Armenians that's a little bit strange sometimes even though I'm I'm fully Armenian and so I noticed that when I would be talking to people that there would be this sort of shift when they realize that I am Armenian and so Um, So anyway, so once that happened, then I realized that they would talk about other Armenians in different sorts of ways. So I'm going to, I'll just read this passage. There were Hayastansi highs, meaning Armenia and Armenia Armenians, Ameriga highs, meaning American Armenians, Beiruta highs, uh, Armenians from Beirut, Bostono highs, so from Boston, Los Angeles highs, Fresno highs, Surya highs, Rusa highs, Fransa highs, Bolsa highs, meaning Istanbul Armenians, and Barska highs, meaning Iranian Armenians, to name just a few. 
many of the California Armenians, those whose families came directly to California from the Ottoman Empire, would further identify themselves or each other by naming the villages in the Ottoman Empire from which their parents or grandparents had come, describing themselves, for example, as Kharpertsis, Mushatsis, or, or Marashtis. And at times there would be overlap. Hayastansi highs, meaning Armenia highs, and Rusa highs were sometimes used interchangeably, while a Fresno high, speaking of a Los Angeles high, was often actually referring to a Beirut high who had settled in Los Angeles. And so, yeah, so I keep I go a little bit further into these different ways of distinguishing. But this was what would happen when sort of they realized I when they learned I was Armenian. And beforehand, it was more, there are Odars, meaning foreigners, and then there are Armenians, right? And then they would learn I was Armenian, and it was like, wait a minute, so this is actually how we talk about the community, you know? And so, so again, it sort of, once again, reminded me of the futility of having a term such as, as Armenian music, because with all these divisions, you know, how do you even decide whose Armenian music are we talking about, basically? One of the things that made me very nervous in writing the book was wanting it to be accepted in the way that, okay, she's she she represented us well. You know, I think anybody from any group, any 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 group was was is going to feel that pressure, you know, and not that it was a pressure that was like exerted onto me like in any sort of perceptible way, but I wanted to to show that, you know, no, I get this. I, I, I understand the complexities here, you know, so there was a little bit of, of that, I think that played into it. But at the same time, I mean, this was a book that I was writing as scholarship. It was a book that was written for ethnomusicologists, you know, or, and whoever else wants to read it. And so so this was definitely not sort of my plea to the Armenian community to like sort of prove my insiderness. But at the same time, there was that question in me, like, am I going to mess this up, you know, and 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 for me, messing that up would not necessarily mean doing bad scholarship, but really outing myself as not a good Armenian. Yeah. I mean, the phrase that came up, I think, was strategic essentialism. Yes. Yeah. That's Bivak phrase. Yeah. But you're showing complexity. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is the thing that I did want to do. And I felt like me being able to sort of ride this insider-outsider, you know, difference, one thing I, I feel like I was able to do was to show, yes, you know, the sort of essentialist narrative has been constructed by Armenians, but there's a reason for it. You know, there was strategy there. And so you know, without sort of writing too much from an insider standpoint, which I couldn't hide, you know, obviously that I was doing that. But I did want to sort of didn't want to really pass judgment, right? Like as much as, you know, I think this hasn't been the most uh, useful at times, you know, constructing this narrative, I did really want to make clear that there was a reason that the narrative came to exist. And it played a very strategic role in terms of survival, cultural survival, you know, I think any approach to this has to be delicate, you know, um, because you're taking away something from people that they've used to survive. Another point that struck me was that it's a privilege to yes. to depart from strategic essentialism. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the people who hold on to this the strongest are often the people who have the least. And so to sort of puncture those narratives is really, I think, quite disrespectful at times. Or, or it can be done in a way that that can be quite harmful. And so so that's the thing that I really wanted to 
do in in the book is to both acknowledge that these sort of more essentialized narratives exist, especially when you look at sort of, for example, the Gomidas, you know, uh, mythos or the Gomidas iconography, but then also honor why they came to exist and what role is it that they're playing, especially when we're talking about a group of people who still don't have recognition for the genocide. And on top of that, you know, have suffered a great deal, whether it was in the Lebanese Civil War or, you know, sort of... Um, bigotry when they came to the United States, that sort of thing. And then also honoring the voices of Armenians who feel very left out of this narrative. So, for example, I've met a number of Armenians in the course of my work who are from Iran, and they're saying, I don't know where where we fit into all of this, you know. What about Armenians who are from Turkey? And so there are a lot of people whose stories have not been told, and or, or they have been told, but because they don't fit into the sort of essentialized narrative that exists, they sort of become marginalized in the community um, or in, in, in terms of this uh, Armenian uh, understanding of Armenian identity. And so there's no good way in one book, obviously, to capture all of these stories, but to acknowledge that they exist. And this is just, I think that's why I called my chapter snapshots. These are just small shots in time of a very specific group of people. I don't know what the solution is, and maybe that's something that I'm still struggling with, but uh, I really wanted to find a way of honoring this complexity without demonizing the fact that this more centralized narrative exists. Sylvia Alajaji's book is Music and the Armenian Diaspora. And you can find a link to it, as well as a bibliography and other information on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find links there to some of the music we played on this episode, which is courtesy of Ian Nagoski and Canary Records. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care. <laughs>